am so glad that you've joined us today, especially today in this age of social distancing. How's that working out for you? Well, hopefully it's a little better than it's working out for this little guy. Have you seen him yet? There are dangers around every corner. It's not easy in these days, and yet I know there are some of us who are inwardly celebrating the fact that our government has put us on lockdown. You introverts out there, you are loving the fact that finally you are allowed to stay alone in your house and avoid contact at any cost. But there are others of us that enjoy the contact, and whether we're having a conversation with a neighbor, or, or for me, I, I, I miss Chick-fil-A. I, I like like the food, of course, but, but most I like those long lines you have to stand in to order your food. I can work in two or three great conversations before I even get to the front. And I can't do that now because I'm following the government mandate to avoid social contact. Well, that's how we follow the mandates of the government. But how are we supposed to follow the mandates of God and his word in this time of social distancing? What does that look like? Well, for instance, the mandate to not avoid or not uh, forsake the gathering together with the believers. We're doing that through ways like this, online, virtual, uh, live stream, all the ways we're doing not only on Sundays, but all throughout the week. We might not be two or three rows apart. It might be two or three miles apart, but we're still together celebrating this. But what about mandates like this? How can we be a good neighbor? How can we love our neighbor in a time of social distancing? Well, as you can imagine, God speaks directly to this. In fact, he gave us a fantastic story in the New Testament that gives us all kinds of insights of what this might look like. So if you have your Bible, open up to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 10. I'm going to read the story and then we're going to dig in and pull out the insights that God has for us. Luke Chapter 10, let's start with verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn and he took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had. 
Which of these do you think was a true neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Well, this is a fantastic story, and I believe in this story we're going to find the answers to the questions that we're asking. And the first question I want to ask right off the bat is simply this. Uh, who are the characters in this story? Because you kind of know how parables work in the New Testament. Jesus often used a parable to teach. Uh, uh, Jesus was truly there. He was really there talking to an expert of the law, and there were his disciples and others all around. This really happened. But the story that Jesus tells, this parable, is a fable. He, he made it up. It's, it's a teaching tool for Jesus, and he used it over and over and over again all throughout the New Testament. And this parable not only was meant to teach us, but each part of the parable was meant to teach us. Each part and each character. And that's why it's so important for us to understand who and what each role, each character played. It's because I believe these roles have a, play a big part in our life and our, our walk with Jesus as well. So, so let's take a look at these characters. Number one, we have the character of the victim. Who is this victim? Where do we find him? Well, the Bible says he was on the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. You may remember from your church history, your Bible history, that, that Jerusalem was, is, is to this day built on a, on a high plain. It is, it is elevated above other cities around it, but also because it is the city of God and the place of the temple. When a Jew, a follower of Jesus, of God, would, would, would talk about Jerusalem, they would always talk about going up to Jerusalem because they were going up to the temple going up to meet with God. When they were leaving that mountaintop experience, they were coming back down. So, so this guy was now on the downhill uh, path. He was, he was on that path and, and it was about a 17 mile stretch fairly straight. You could, you could almost look all the way down the road. On, there, was, there were rocks on, on the side, and, and it was a very dangerous place because of these rocks, and, and the robbers and the thieves and, and others that would try to do harm would be hiding behind these rocks and, and using that as an opportunity to rob others and to steal from them. So, so this victim, he, he kind of knew what he was getting into, and yet he found himself there. And I think this is a good place for us to look very carefully at his situation, because I think it protects very closely to our situation. He was alone, he was beaten, he was robbed, and the Bible says he was left for dead. There was nothing left to take. Everything that could have been taken from him, and I believe the robbers thought they'd actually already taken his life. They left him thinking he was already dead. That's how you can interpret that, the meaning of that word, left for dead. So they had taken everything there was to take from this guy, and now they leave him there for dead. Folks, the, the, the enemy in the story would have been the robbers. You and I, we also have an enemy, and he is just as real and just as deadly and just as dangerous. The Bible talks about our enemy and says that our enemy seeks who he can kill and destroy. I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to miss how important it is that this enemy came to kill and destroy not only this, this victim in the story, but us as well. And he will rob us of our money. He will rob us of our resources. He will rob us of our goods. He will rob us of our freedom. He will even rob us of our health. And when he has sapped everything he can out of us, he will leave us for dead because there is nothing left that we can do for him because he is only in it for himself and building his own kingdom. 
You may remember a story I told a few weeks ago about a friend of mine named Mike in Germany. He is a, was a big guy that uh, came to faith out of a very dark cultural part of our society in East Germany. And when he got saved, it was a huge celebration for our little church. We celebrated. We had a, a baptismal service for him down in the river. We had a big meal to celebrate. It was, it was a fantastic day. That same night, some of his friends from his old life, they found out what had happened. They weren't happy about it at all. They found Mike and they beat the snot out of him and they stabbed him with knives and they stuffed him in the back of a car. And as they're, as they're driving past our church building, they pushed him out of the car and he came rolling to a stop right in front of the door of the church. Somehow he, he grabs his cell phone, he calls us and, and my, my colleague Sean gets to him first and calls the police and the uh, ambulance right away and he's, he's looking at Mike and all he can say is, Mike, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Mike looks up at him and he says, it's okay. They didn't kill me. <laughs> to this day, Big Mike is one of the greatest missionaries to a dark part of that culture that, that you and I would probably know nothing about. We would never even want to know anything about the places that he's come from and the places he still returns to to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Folks, when the devil takes us, he takes everything he can, our hope, our peace, even our health, even our resources. He takes every, he saps everything he can and leaves us for dead. But he didn't kill us. And that's when our good Samaritan, that's when our Savior, that's when Jesus enters the scene and changes everything. We'll get to that in a minute. Let's look at the next one. Let's look at the priest. The priest. Well, the priest gets a, a tough rap most times, and I'm probably going probably gonna to lay into him a little bit myself. But, but for most people, we don't understand how in the world it is possible that a priest, a man of God, probably, arguably, at that time, the most godly person in that whole region, how this guy can look at a guy dying left for dead on the side of the road and can just simply walk on the other side and keep going. How can that happen? That, that's not even real. No one is that heartless, much less a man of God. Let me give you some insight, not an excuse. I don't believe these are excuses, but possibly an explanation. For the priests, it was very important to get to Jerusalem. Priests, they had a huge responsibility in those days. Now we're spoiled in that each one of us has direct access to God. If you want to talk to God, you just open your mouth or open your heart and you start talking to him. If you need forgiveness for your sins, simple. All you have to do is close your eyes and begin talking to him. You could write it down. You could say it out loud. You could say it in your heart any way you want to. It's simple because we have direct access to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In these days, they didn't have that. If you or I in these days had to get to God, we had to give that message to the priest. If you and I had sins to be forgiven, we had to ask forgiveness and, and make sacrifices and the priest would bring those offerings to God in our place. He only got to do that one day a year. And there was some stipulations. If he was not completely pure, if he was not in perfect standing with God, God, they believed at that time that God would, would smite him dead on the spot. So seeing this dead man he thought was dead, or at least dying, bleeding. He knew that if he got involved at that point, there would be blood involved. 
that blood would automatically make him unclean. Him being unclean automatically meant that he would be unable to take care of all the needs of all the other people, the people back home that were his people. This guy was a total stranger and not just a stranger. He didn't know where he came from or who he was or what his family was. He had people back home that he loved, people back home that loved him. He had responsibilities. He had things to take care of. This was a major inconvenience. If he had helped him, it could have meant uh, the, the danger of returning to Jerusalem, waiting seven days, going through the whole purification process again, and then hopefully... Uh, prayerfully making it back home safely without any robbers attacking you. I'm not making excuses for the guy, but I want you to understand he looked at this opportunity and he saw it rather as an inconvenience. There's no way he can do this because it would cost him too much. He was letting the one go for the sake of the many. And then there were, was the Levite. Now the Levite, he wasn't a professional like the priest, but he was a professional in training. He was a, a high-level volunteer. He was a lay leader. He was the, the director of the Sunday school classes. He was uh, the, the director of the worship team. He was heading up things in the church. He, he might not have been paid for what he did, but he was involved in everything. As, as, as often as a pastor or the priest was in the building, he was there too. He knew everything to do, and he he did it rightly and he did it correctly. What is his deal? Why didn't he go right to the guy and begin helping him? He knew, just like the priest, how important it was to help others and to love others and to follow the mandates of God. And yet he chose to avoid this man and walk on the other side as well. Remember what I said about this road that went from Jerusalem all the way down to Jericho? This road was very straight. And for miles and miles and miles, you could look straight ahead and see everything that was coming and everything behind you. And we don't know this for sure, but I can imagine that as he looked ahead, he knew that was a priest in front of him. Maybe he even knew which priest it was. They wore a special kind of robe and it would have blown in the wind. So this Levite would have known exactly who it was in front of him. Maybe not personally, but said, there's the priest in front of me. He would have watched intently as he realized that that lump on the side of the road was a, a human being and, and the red was the blood and, and that he was bleeding out and dying and he would have watched that priest as that priest looked as that priest crossed the other side and passed right by and kept going and what did the Levite do he did the same thing folks this is so important that we understand the power of a positive influence and peer pressure that we have on those behind us pastors leaders deacons and elders, Sunday school teachers, parents. We must understand that those behind us are watching intently how we take care of things. For, for this guy, he's like, you know, who am I? I, I I've never done anything like this. I, I don't know how to do this. And, and, and if I get in trouble and I get blood all over me, I've got to go back. I don't have family in Jerusalem. I don't know how I could stay there for seven days and, and go through the purification rites again. I don't, I, I've never done this before. And, and if the priest, if he didn't do it, well, who am I to think I can do it? If he can't handle it or he doesn't want to handle it, well, then who am I to think I should do it or I can do it? I don't have the skill set. I don't have the ability. I've never been trained. I've never been asked. I've never been invited. I've never been given that responsibility. I better play it safe and I'm going to walk on by. And, he does. and then we have the Samaritan. Now, why did Jesus have to pick a Samaritan? I mean, we had the priest and then we had the Levite. 
Jesus could have picked a, a nice Jew or a nice Jewish girl or, or just a regular Joe, anybody. Why a Samaritan? Samaritans, they were the sworn enemy of the Jews. And, and for a Samaritan, the Jews were their sworn enemies. They were like oil and water. They didn't mix. Uh, uh, they, every time they would get together, there'd be a big explosion. There's no way there's going to be this kind of interaction and compassionate response from our sworn enemy. There, there's no way it can work. Jesus, why do you always have to to poke why does it always have to be awkward jesus just 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 make the plans and make the stories fit our ideas and what's comfortable for me and and what i would naturally tend to do why does it have to always be so different i think that's exactly the point god's trying to make here that we get into a rut we we feel very comfortable helping ourselves <laughs> maybe even just as comfortable helping those that are near us those that we love and those that we care about we're even willing to help and reach out and and love on neighbors that are close by and and somewhat like us but the minute you ask us to start loving on caring for helping those outside of our world well that's a whole other story they might even be enemies god how do you expect me to do that well, the way he does it is to put a guy like the Samaritan in his story. Let's understand him a little bit better. Verse 33 says, And the Samaritan came upon him and he saw him. Number one, how can we be like the Samaritan? You gotta be looking, you gotta open your eyes. The priest walked by and he looked. The Levite walked by and he looked. And upon looking, they chose to go the other side and keep going. Only here, only the Samaritan saw how important it is to see somebody. I know how hard it is to see because we are so distracted with everything going on in our own world. All the problems that we're having, we're hunkered down. We're the ones that are running out of food. We can't get our medicines. We can't even get enough toilet paper. How in the world can I start focusing on the needs and the problems of those around me? Jesus says, open your eyes and see. When do we begin helping others, our neighbors? When you see a need, just like the Samaritan, when he saw that need, he began to help it. But the needs are so great, Father, the needs are so great, Jesus. How can we begin doing that? Someone asked Rick Warren the same question. Rick Warren, pastor of a, of a large church in California, he had a passion for helping the victims of AIDS in Africa. And he, many people said, what can one guy, one pastor, one church do uh, to fight this humongous battle? Rick Warren's answer was simply this, I will do for the one in front of me that I can't do for the whole world. You can't save the world, but you can save the one in front of you. When God shows you something and your eyes are open and you see a need, that is automatically for you to get involved. We need to practice opening our eyes Practice praying daily, God, where are the needs? Open my eyes. Let me see what you already see. And when we do that, he will begin showing you. And as we do, we will begin, like the, like the Samaritans, taking pity or having compassion. Now, this is a huge word. We've talked about it before. It's that Greek word, splanchnitsomai. <laughs> That's a, a great word. It pretty means uh, uh, your, your innards, your, 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 your guts, <laughs> your organs. You know, when, when we in our culture, in American culture, 2020, talking about loving someone, we talk about we feel it all the way down to the bottom of our hearts. That is an organ. 
In those days, they would have talked about uh, caring about, being compassionate for, loving someone all the way down to the bottom of their innards, their, their guts, their spleen, their liver. I mean, that was how deep it was. It was like a gut punch of feeling for someone else. The whole point of this word is to feel in your body the pain that your neighbor is experiencing. When you have compassion on someone, biblical compassion on someone, you feel in your body the pain that your neighbor, your friend, the person on the other side of the world going through a really tough time, the pain that they're going through, you feel that compassion. We know what that feels like. We're watching the same news programs, the, the folks that are suffering on the other side of the world with this coronavirus, people that we know and we love right here in our own city that are suffering from this illness, the, 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 the first responders and the medical professionals that are working 20 or more hours a day, exhausted, barely on their feet, and we are feeling their pain. That is what God is calling us to do, to be compassionate. Uh, someone asked C.S. Lewis one time, how much should I give? How much should I offer? His answer was simply this, give more than you think you can spare. Folks, when, when we're talking about giving, whether it's giving of our, of, our, of our toilet paper or giving of our time, giving of our energy, uh, even in church, giving of our tithes and our offerings uh, financially, whatever giving God is calling you to do, God is calling you to give what you think you can spare and then a little bit more. It's not about a magic number or a magic percentage. It's about what God has called you to do. And it should also be more than you think you can spare because as you are giving more than you think you can spare, it hurts as you give up an hour extra than you thought you had available, a day extra, uh, a, a week more of energy, or even a dollar or a hundred dollars more than you thought you could afford. So that you're feeling in your body the same pain that, you're, that the one you're helping is experiencing. Well, that are the, those are the characters in the story, but let's, let's transition now to the second question. Who are you in this story? Which of these characters would best represent who you are? Let's look quickly at the priest. If you feel kind of like the priest, like you're so busy, you're so keyed in, the next meeting is more important than meeting a need, this is where you need to stop and pay attention. Too many of us need to slow down and open our eyes and see the needs in front of us. We are so busy running and we are running so fast and our calendars are so full that we have no ability to see anymore. We are so blinded with the speed of our own lives, with what is truly important. Folks, don't miss the best thing because you're doing good things. The longer we walk with Jesus, the more we grow in maturity in our faith. The question is not any more right or wrong, good or bad. The question starts to become between good and better and better and best. Folks, I want you to go for best, even if it means saying no to the good. Secondly, the Levite. What do we know about him? He was insecure. He wasn't sure of himself. He wasn't uh, sure that his own abilities, his own skill set, uh, what he'd been taught before, the experience of the, that he had was up to the game. If he was going to be able to help in the way that needed to be helped. But we feel the same way. We've never been confronted with this pandemic. We don't know how to help neighbors and, and certainly not to help neighbors all the way on the other side of the world. We've never been confronted with stuff like this. And yet God is asking us to love our neighbor, to help our neighbor. But we're afraid. We're afraid of overcommitting. We're afraid of promising something that we can't deliver on. 
Uh, we don't know how, or we may know how, but we don't know him. We don't know her. What is God telling us to do? God's telling us just, just let all those things melt away. When God opens your eyes, when you see a need, and that is automatically for you an invitation to involve yourself in that need, when that, when that passion and that compassion begins to well up in your heart, then God is saying, drop everything and just jump in. Trust him. It's a trust issue. Not because you've had all the training you need, not because you've experienced this 20 times and you know just how to do it. Even if your leaders are missing the mark, God is calling you to jump in. Third, this expert in the law. Now, this is interesting. Some of you may feel like you're most like him. Did you hear what the Bible said? Verse 25 said that he was testing Jesus. Or verse 29 said he was looking to justify himself. This guy was just looking for loopholes. I mean, this guy loved the law. He loved checking off things that he was doing right. It wasn't about a relationship with God. It was about a religion. It wasn't about knowing Jesus personally. It was somehow about puffing himself up publicly in front of others so that others would see how well he does and how strong he leads and how much in front. He's not even afraid to confront Jesus. Oh, yeah, he calls Jesus teacher. But he has no intention of following Jesus' commands. Do you know someone like that? <laughs> Are you someone like that? It's not about a relationship with Jesus for you. It's about a list of rules and traditions and, and rituals. And, and as long as you're doing everything right, as long as you're checking all the boxes, you're good. And not only are you good, you're better. Because at the same time as you're checking off those boxes, you're looking at everyone else to see how far behind you they are. Just so you can know who's really the best one, who's really at the top of the heap. Folks, this is not at all what God wants. God doesn't want any of us to be about a, a, a platform or about a position. He wants it to be about a personal relationship with him. And the only way to do that is to let this stuff go and to focus on him. And then fourthly, we have the victim here. Now, I think this is important for us to look at the victim one more time. This victim, and you may be this victim. All of us were at one point this victim. We were broken. We were drained of hope. We were drained of life. We were drained of our resources. There was no way at that point we could have saved ourselves. Forget it. There's no way. It was impossible. There was, we were, we were laying, we were left for dead. The enemy had sapped everything he could from our lives and we were laying there for dead until our savior came and he bound up our wounds and he poured oil over us and he healed us and he, he took us to a place, an inn, a place where we could be comforted by others. And he even paid uh, money, uh, a price, uh, that would take care of us for today and tomorrow and all of our tomorrows for all of eternity. Folks, if you are that victim and you find yourself still laying on the side of the road and you feel like you are still sapped of everything you had and you are left for dead, but you have not yet experienced what it's like when that Savior comes in, folks, I want to tell you, this guy's life was radically changed. I promise you, when, when he got back on his feet and he was able to talk and communicate and got back to his family, you can imagine the stories he told. And not just once, I bet he told the story a thousand times. He said, and then this Samaritan. Folks, that is so important for us to understand. This guy that helped the victim wasn't even from his people. 
Folks, you and I, before we knew Jesus, we weren't from Jesus' people. We weren't from his tribe. We wouldn't have normally associated with, with those kind of people that go to churches. But when we were on our backs and we were almost gone and we were running on fumes and that Savior came from, from another culture, if you will, he changed everything and that changed our lives. And now we have that same opportunity to give that same testimony that this guy did over and over and over again. You say, how could we be like uh, this good Samaritan? How can we live out the truth, the story? Very simply, I think there's two ways, two things that kind of set this guy apart that you and I can learn from. Number one, his courage. Simply answering that question, is this or was this an inconvenience for those guys or was it an opportunity? In every instance, especially during this pandemic, this time of hunkering down, you and I will have to ask that same question. Is this opportunity that I'm seeing? God, I prayed to open my eyes. I prayed for compassion. As I'm seeing this, is it an inconvenience or is it an opportunity? Number one, you must have courage. Courage means no fear. You don't need to have it planned out. You don't need to have the plan in place. You don't need for it to be safe. You don't need any of those things. All you need is to trust God, and that takes courage. Any believer in Jesus knows how hard it is to, to, to renounce your control of your own life and place it at the feet of Jesus, because that means you're not in control anymore. Guys, that's a tough place. Gals, I'm sure you're the same. It's not easy to relinquish that and let someone else control your life, but that takes courage. And when we do that, God takes it and he heals and he binds up and he, and he brings hope again and he sets us out and we're able to share the testimony of that experience everywhere we go, but only when we trust him and we have that courage. Folks, uh, in a few weeks, we'll, Lord willing, be celebrating uh, not a baby dedication, but a parent commissioning. What is that, you may ask? It's simply uh, this. Instead of dedicating the parents to raise their child uh, in the way that he should go or she should go, we are commissioning those parents because we believe they are disciple makers. They are leaders. They are missionaries in their home, raising their children up in the way they should go. But here's one of the questions and one of the challenges we're going to have for those parents when that child grows and is being discipled by those parents his or her whole life, and it's time for that child to launch, <laughs> whether it's college in another city, whether it's work in another state, maybe it's missions in another country. When that day comes, we are asking those parents now, today, in just a few weeks, will you launch your children? Will you send their, your children off with no fear. Folks, this, this isn't normal. This isn't human. It is supernatural to have this kind of courage, but this is the kind of courage that God gives us. And then secondly, we're going to need margin. If we're going to see these opportunities that God brings our way because we prayed for sight, because we prayed for compassion, the only way to see that as an opportunity and not an inconvenience is if God gives us some margin. Now, here's the problem. 
If you're like me, we have very little or possibly no margin in our life. If you were to check our calendars, they are full unto overflowing. If you were to look at our daily agenda, all the work and the, and the house and, and the child care and the child taxiing, we are filled unto overflowing. If you were to look at our bank accounts, they're not overflowing. They are, in fact, just the opposite. They are running on fumes and we are spending everything we make and then some. And so when an opportunity presents, itself, when we do see an opportunity and when the compassion wells up within us, the first thought is, how am I going to pay for this? How am I going to fit this into my day? How am I going to get this done on top of all the other things? Then it becomes an inconvenience and not an opportunity. This good Samaritan, I promise you, he wasn't super wealthy and retired with all the time and energy in the world at his request. He was a normal guy like you and me with wife and kids and family and job and house and, and, and bills and everything else. And yet God used him to do this. Why? Because he had the margin. Folks, where does margin come from? It's really simple. It's actually one word, two letters. Before you can say yes to any of these new things, you need to learn how to say no. The only way to create margin in your calendar, in your agenda, in your, in your personal life, in your financial life, the only way to create margin is to begin saying no to things that are holding you back. Otherwise, as long as you are full under overflowing with, with busyness, when you are lacking, running on fumes financially, you will always see every opportunity as an inconvenience. And God wants to break that chain. Folks, God is calling us to be a good neighbor. God is calling us to love our neighbors, especially in this time of social distancing. How do we do that? I encourage you, read the story over and over and over again until God brings out more ideas in your heart that will help you understand what it means to be a good neighbor. Brothers and sisters, open your eyes. Pray for those opportunities and go be a good neighbor. Thank you so much for listening this week to the New Hope Church podcast. If you live in and around Cape Coral, Florida, we would love to have you visit our church campus. If you would like some more information about us, we can be found at www.NewHopeCapeCoral.com.